You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 77. On this episode, the Frontline Summit 2013. What did we learn? Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And if you are joining us for the first time, welcome. This is a project by the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. And I'm so glad to have Sandy back here in the studio today to talk about a, uh, a project and an ongoing conversation with um, you know many of the partner organizations that the center has worked with over the years to continue to work to combat child sexual exploitation and Sandy, we're here today to talk about a, a report that was put together and some of the findings and to be able to share some of these, some of the wisdom that came out of this conversation late last year. And so I'm, I'm so excited to get into this and start talking about the details. This is an important summary of the Frontline Summit to Combat Child Sexual Exploitation. We um, at the center, research and education are, are like two things that you have to have them together all the time. If you're not constantly going back and studying the issues, um, then how do you provide an education that's viable for the future for students that are graduating from Vanguard and want to enter the battle to fight human trafficking? And I have to tell you, Dave, one of the most encouraging um, motivational aspects of my job as a teacher at Vanguard University are the number of students that take what they learn and take it into their careers to combat human trafficking. Um, Some of our students are child welfare workers, others work in the foster program. One of our our alums is an, an undercover investigator uh, federally, another is working in grant writing. So it just goes on and on and on. And so we want to make sure that we're preparing them with the best possible information. And that means we have to constantly be doing research. And it goes on and on even beyond the students at Vanguard. Uh, we have such an important role, Sandy, and of the center of educating the community, of providing the resources to those that are serving victims, of those who are doing prevention, of the partnerships being built. And so many of those folks have been on this show. And this this podcast is a service of that, of being right. able to study the issues and be a voice so that others can then make a difference with us in working to end human trafficking. So it, it really does all come together. It, but it's it like all a com- cycle, huh? It it's does. It does. And it all comes back to the importance of having the right information, the right knowledge, studying the issues. And that's why we're always looking for the newest information out and continuing the dialogue with people who are involved in this. And that, that was a big part of this uh, the, that this came summit. out of this report. Yeah. Can I just take a moment and say happy birthday to us? April oh, sure. 2011, we started Ending Human Trafficking. We did. We did. It's just three years the podcast wow. has been going, and we've been every other week pretty much, with a rare exception. We missed a week, but uh, we've pretty much been every other week since then. It's been exciting to uh, to have this conversation with you every other week, So, Andy. yeah, it's like this is a birthday. 
and come if online you- and make a comment and tell us that you listen to Ending Human Trafficking. I don't even... Well, Dave, you tell us how to make those comments. Oh, sure. Well, if you wanted to give us a birthday present, <laughs> here would be the way to do it. Um, not for us, but for the benefit of the community and building more partnerships and ending human trafficking is to uh, go on to whatever audio directory you use, if it's iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere else, and leave a comment about the show. If the show's been helpful to you, we'd love to know. If the show hasn't been helpful to you, we'd like to know that too so we can improve it. So leave us an honest review on iTunes or Stitcher or one of the other services, that will help more people to find the show. A lot of people do go online these days and search the directories for things like human trafficking and resources. And we want to be able to empower as many people as possible with the right knowledge and resources. And that's how many of you have heard about us originally. So uh, if you would take a moment to do that, that would be a wonderful birthday present for us, Sandy. And if you are looking for more resources or to go through um, materials that are available through the Global Center for Women and Justice, just go to our website, gcwj.vanguard.edu. And in fact, that's where this uh, report will be posted up on the show notes for this episode. We are going to walk through it here today In uh, we'll go through some of the high-level aspects of it and some of the conversation that happened at the summit. We won't have a chance to do justice to the whole thing. And so did you like that, justice? So yes, little, that's little right. Play on, okay, little play good, on our words. good. Hey, it's a uh, birthday party today. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the cake? Exactly, exactly. So this report will be online. But we do want to hit on some of the big parts of this conversation, Sandy. And so first of all, um, I was wondering if you can, because I was not there, so you can educate me a little bit as well on this summit. Uh, so this was from the 2013 Frontline Summit to Combat Child Sexual Exploitation. So this happened late last year. So I'm wondering if you could share with us what's the purpose of the summit and who was there? Okay. So in May last year, Judge Douglas Hajimonji, who was the Orange County Presiding Juvenile Justice, um, called me and said, would you reconvene the summit? And he was referring to a 2011 summit that we had held on child trafficking, where we'd had um, participants from juvenile justice and probation, um, that entire uh, cadre of professionals working with um, minors who have been sexually exploited for commercial sex. And that's sex trafficking by definition, federally and state and local. And so at that summit, we had about 45 participants. They came from Las Vegas, San Diego, San Bernardino, Riverside, and Orange County. And we identified seven gaps in addressing the issues, a secure, safe house, funding and training, community engagement, risk assessment tools, communication and collaboration, data collection, and legislation. And since that October 2011 date, some progress has been made, but the judge said we need more and we need more people at the table. So we met for several months to um, develop a strategy for a second summit. And this time we invited not only juvenile um, justice professionals, we invited juvenile dependency we, the minor attorneys, child welfare, social workers, probation officers, sheriffs, school administrators, behavioral health professionals, and court-appointed special advocates. Wow. So a, a lot of people. Now there were about 100 people in the room 
um, judges. There were seven judges that participated. So the, and a lot of administrative um, um, professionals from our Department of Education from every county. So we had a really strong uh, representation. So it wasn't just focused on one particular um, county because cool. everybody's experiences are a little bit different, mm-hmm. and our our target um, population here is very transitory. So, kids that are being exploited here in Orange County may next week be in San Bernardino or San Diego mm. or in Las Vegas. So, how do we build stronger communication? That's part of the purpose for this. The um, the summit abstract is is right there on the show notes you'll have that i think one of the most notable things that we were able to identify were the gaps in risk assessment and um, identification tools trauma-informed environment for this this population and fluid consistent information sharing across agencies that involve multidisciplinary teams. So those are some of the things that we're going to talk about right now. Okay, great. Um, When we started our summit, we wanted to frame the discussion and we invited um, special panelists to come. And one of those was Harmony Dust. I remember Harmony. She was on this show not too long ago. Ah, that's right. That's right. Um, I think that was episode number 37, so you can go back and listen to her. She's a wonderful survivor advocate. And and the thing that she emphasized that people kept repeating over and over again during the summit and after is ask the next question. Ask a second and a third question. Uh, Particularly in our schools, we identified that Often the teachers and the principal, the school nurse, those are the frontline advocates for these kids. They're going to see them before anybody else does. And we hope they can be identified so we can do better prevention and intervention before they move over into juvenile court. Um, We don't want them to be in delinquency if we can intervene before that happens. So Harmony's advice when that little kid comes to school and doesn't have their homework and is hungry and seems to be um, disheveled, don't just ask why they didn't bring their homework. Ask the second question. Mm-hmm. And we've mentioned that before when we talked about some of the frontline um, frontline providers, Sandy, and that's a really good reminder of to ask that second question and see if you can learn more about what's really going on with somebody. And we, we also invited our, our frontline um, law enforcement investigators to be at the table for this. And they really emphasize that the culture of law enforcement is changing so that they don't think of these kids as prostitutes anymore. I mean, the, changing that kind of thinking in culture is going to take time. But this is part of the process, getting this message out there so that more and more law enforcement begins to also ask the sex second question, why is she on the street or why is he? So um, that was an important aspect. That's great to hear, Sandy, because I know that that is something that those in law enforcement who've been very um, involved in this issue and wanting to address it have really been working hard towards. So it's great to hear that there is there is some change that is starting to happen there. I have to tell you, though, sometimes when I talk to my friends that are in law enforcement, um, they become 
a little weary because they feel like, oh, okay, we did the training, everybody sat there, we got it all, and now then those people have been moved into new uh, roles because everybody gets circulated through different aspects of law enforcement, Mm -hmm. and now there's a whole new group that's out there on the streets, and we have to go back and train them. So Mm -hmm. the training never ends. We have to keep, keep, keep persistent in making sure that our frontline um, service providers are equipped with tools and knowledge that they need. Well, and that's really a good mantra for all of us in whatever profession we're in. We should never be ending our training. And it is it is frustrating when we're trying to change the culture of a entire industry or an entire, um, you know, service providers like law enforcement. Uh, that takes time and, and may take many, many years to fully change that. Uh, yet that work is so important, that diligence, that consistency is so important in training, Sandy. And for me, I, if I want people to understand how important the community engagement aspect is to law enforcement, because law enforcement, to treat these kids as victims, it takes more time, more resources, and having um, victim advocates and volunteers that set up um shelter situations for these kids that help with the process. The law enforcement officer is not going to have all of those tools in his kit right there. Right. Of course not. So our, our responsibility is, is um, also critical. It, it is so neat to see law enforcement making that transition, Sandy, because I, I just have to imagine what a difficult transition that is because it, it, it law enforcement officers are so trained to look at um, you know the, the criminal aspects of of everything and all their training and all their uh, their education around how to handle situations. And so this is really a different mindset um, in Very a lot different. of ways. And so you know, and and you know, all the things that police officers deal with on the street on a daily basis, it it really does take time and effort to make that change. And it's it's so exciting to see that happening. Well, and it, we've interviewed um, uh, Deputy Chief Derek Marsh in the past, and. And he brings that home. We're going to interview our um, Anaheim Police Department Sergeant Craig Friesen in the near future. Oh, and, great. great. Um, I think he'll bring another perspective, too. Yeah, good. Excellent. So moving on, then, we also um, had a panel that addressed um, multidisciplinary teams from the perspective of the assistant principal in a school that has to deal with kids who have truancy issues or maybe on probation. And so how do we look at those kids in with a second question or a third question? Mm. Um, and then thinking through the issues of being trauma-informed. And that is um, a way of looking at these kids and thinking, are they acting out because of what's happening right now? Or are they acting out because of what they remember happened in the past that was traumatic for them? You know, Sandy, it reminds me of something I saw posted a quote online the other day. The kids who need the most love will ask for it in the most unloving of ways. And uh, Bonnie had posted that online, my wife, and I thought Mm. that that was a really interesting perspective just thinking about it through this conversation too of the kids that the frontline providers like teachers and school nurses run into on a daily basis that that often there is that element of a second question or a reason that that's happening and and that quote is so important because we sometimes think well there is somebody up here who's responsible for taking care of these kids mm-hmm. but 
Each of us engages with them at some level when they're at school, whether it's the, um, the food service person or the person who signs them in if they get to school late in the, in the administration office. Yeah. So everybody needs to understand to ask that second question and to see them through with eyes that understand. So as we be as we began to really get into the working groups during the two day summit, the first exercise was an exercise to identify root causes and gaps. And it was absolutely the room was a buzz. Everybody worked really, really hard on their own counties. And Eventually, all five of the counties identified some very prime fundamental risk factors for CSEC, commercial sexual exploitation of children. They identified generational poverty. So there are cycles of poverty that reduce options for kids. Secondly, dysfunctional family life. And that can include a lot of things that have to do with um, mental health issues, um, custody issues in divorce, uh, family circumstances that put one um, parent apart from the family and there's no access. So dysfunctional family life includes a, a huge category of issues. Number three, media's negative influence on culture. Now I was facilitating this and when we got to the media's negative influence on culture, um, I kind of cautioned the participants to let's look at issues that we actually have some impact on and media. How can we, how can we impact media? Mm. But yeah, every, tell me more about that. What, uh, every single group said, no, this has to be on the root causes and we have to figure out ways to hold media more accountable for the influence on hypersexualization of kids, glorifying pimp culture, um, the commodification of children in highly sexualized, hypersexualized um, content, those kinds of issues. And this deserves an entire podcast all by itself. Mm. So these five issues that we're going to talk about, we will eventually work on each of these for a podcast. Sandy, could we come back to your earlier point, um, though, before we move on? Because I am curious, you mentioned things we could control um, media is obviously a huge, gigantic topic, uh, and, a, and a, a tons of organizations and people involved. Um, what are some things that maybe we could control ourselves or have individual influence on that would be starting points just for people listening that might be thinking, okay, what could I do around media influence that would be helpful? We all have the ability to turn something off, and if no one's watching, then media is driven by a business model where it has to be profitable. And so if we don't purchase it, if we don't click on it, it's going to go away. That's just a bottom line. But how do we make that a concerted effort? Because um, little clicks here and there don't seem to create enough momentum, so this has to be much more organized. One of the um, one of the projects that I've found absolutely stunning has been a project called See Jane. And Gina Davis um, has been uh, established a research center for how media treats women. And this is one of the streams that they are addressing. Oh, interesting. So I think if we support more of that kind of education and research, that's one way 
to do that. Cool. Thank you. So the fourth root cause that they identified, first was generational poverty, second, dysfunctional family life, third, media's negative influence, and fourth was demand for commercial sex. And the demand side of this really doesn't have much to do with the kids. It has to do with the community. So how does a community create or have a climate where purchasing sex from a child is even possible? And that root cause is demand. And that we've talked about demand a few times before with regard to pornography and commercial sexual exploitation, whether of children or adults. We have, and the show we did with Laura Letter would be a great resource oh, yeah. for people to uh, to check out because I know she's doing a lot of great work on that. And I will track down the episode number here, Sandy, while you are uh, moving on to the next point here so folks have that. Okay, so the... Um, the issues in the gaps in our um, in our community of participants, though, were a little bit different. Those gaps were information sharing. So now we're talking about the people who see these kids every day. They want to be able to share information. They need sustainable funding, school and community involvement in early identification services and placement, and then finally, identification of male victims, pimps, and purchasers. And I think this is an area we haven't spent a lot of time on. Um, When we think about pimps, we think of these uh, like from an old 1990s movie of of, um, some kind of glorified pimp culture. But when you begin to talk to juvenile justice professionals, and we have boys court, we learn that Sometimes these kids' boys are, in a sense, being victimized because they're being groomed to be a pimp. And their minds are not, um, they're not making a choice that they are ready to make. I want to be a pimp. So they get involved in, the, in this, this end of the life um, at 14, 15, 16 years old, just like the girls at 12, 13, 14. And so how do we begin to identify boys who are at risk for being groomed to become pimps. So this whole um, idea of who is a perpetrator and at what point can we intervene and change the course of their future? Those are some of the gaps there. I can't find the episode number, so we'll have Alexis put it on the show notes for people who want to check out Laura Letter's conversation because that's a great a great chat about the demand side of human trafficking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, so those gaps we identified, and we're going to have this all available to you online. When we went to um, our second breakout, then we were looking specifically by profession for strategies um, to prevent and to intervene earlier. So the first group of professionals that reported was the uh, group from the legal field, judges and attorneys. And they also identified information sharing as a strategy that will um, assist in preventing duplication of services and enhance more effective cross-agency communication. And this would require that we start using terminology that's more homogenized and doing countywide training and cross-county training between these professionals. They also recommended mandated reporting 
um, for things that we haven't um, traditionally uh, suggested and the um, the model of the child abuse response, the CAR, um, can include risk factors as well as an actual, we have a case to to um, investigate. And I think this is where, where we've had um, some significant challenges because it's, there's a sense that we have to wait for a crime to happen before we can report it. Um, they also want more um, connection with school programming and with funding for juvenile courts. The next group that reported out was law enforcement, and these were probation officers and deputy sheriffs and police officers. They also need more information sharing. Are we starting to see a trend? Mm-hmm. Multidisciplinary teams. This is key to this. Again, funding, and there's a growing concern that we are not identifying male victims, and we need to be able to have aftercare services that are easily accessed for law enforcement at two o'clock in the morning or um, nearby. The um, educators group also identified, I'm sure you're going to find this. Was it information sharing? It was information sharing and funding and identification. And the educators actually had some of the most innovative ideas for identification strategies. And this is definitely something we want to work towards um, um, fleshing out more and more. Teachers are one of the frontline identifiers of children at risk. So not when they're already involved, but just before Mm. they're recruitable. And they need to have access to a list of services and referral agencies because the teachers cannot become social workers. They have 30 kids, sometimes plus, in their class. So they need services for referral. The um, next group of professionals was child welfare. Again, information sharing, funding, identification tools, and um, intervention protocols and services. This is particularly critical because with um, safe harbor laws that have been passed across the states and are emerging, and um, there's one on the table right now in California that's being adapted, um, more and more in the victim-centered approach, instead of being put into a delinquency category where they go into juvenile detention, they're going to be assigned to child welfare, and they're placed in a shelter or a group home that is safe but not secure. And you know what I mean mm-hmm. by that is we lock the people can't get in, but the kids can walk away. And runaways from um, group homes is a major problem here. The last group that reported out in the second section were the court-appointed special advocates. And they also um, want more information sharing through the girls' court and boys' court, and as well as multidisciplinary teams funding, identification, they identified more community awareness is really significant. And they want a unique um, process for kids who are at risk. So this becomes part of that. And I have to tell you, because of this, I was invited to do a two-hour training for our local CASAs um, right after this report was released. Oh, great. Cool. So I'm hearing a lot of themes and similarities, obviously information sharing coming up for everyone. Um, I'm wondering, Sandy, uh, now that this, we got everyone's 
minds together on this and some initial information sharing was happening just among the group on how to do this. What was the next step uh, after the summit as far as being able to take some of this and begin to implement? Well, our third breakout was how are we going to fill these gaps with existing resources? Mm. Because the reality is, even though funding shows up on everybody's list, we have a finite bucket of resources. Of course. And we have to figure out how to do this with existing resources. So we identified a few things. Multidisciplinary teams was a huge access point for um, sharing information and resources and using existing resources. So at our Ensure Justice conference this last March, um, we held a morning session that was just for the participants of this summit. They came back together and we had three panels that addressed the um, their responses. Hmm. And the first one was building multidisciplinary teams. Um, and how to use existing resources was another panel. And then the third panel that we had was um, trauma-informed care, trauma-informed models. So those three panels then were a point for uh, jumping off to start working groups across the counties and develop stronger patterns of using existing resources and building multidisciplinary teams. So in a future podcast, we will take those panels and reduce those to the main points and share those with you. Sandy, it's so exciting to see how the center and the conference have been able to be a conduit for some of this information sharing to start to happen. And there's so much more to be done. And it's exciting that this podcast is part of that too, of being able to make connections to people and to and through organizations that really do care about this issue. And, and, you know, we're so excited that you've taken a moment to listen in and to build your knowledge so that you can be someone that can assist in this effort too, Sandy. And so I'm, I'm thrilled that we uh, have been able to share this and that the center has been a part of it. And, uh, and I hope folks go online and check out the resources for the report. And of course, if you haven't been on the website before, the best way to get there for the show notes is to go to our website at gcwj.vanguard.edu, and that stands for the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. And the podcast link is up there, so you can find this show as well as all the show notes for every episode previous up there as well. And as Sandy mentioned, we've got several more um, several more shows and information coming out of this summit uh, as far as all the details and resources that'll be helpful for people to connect with. And uh, and hey, don't forget about our birthday present, right? That's right. Yeah. Go online. <laughs> and uh, thank you uh, for those of you who have been listening all along. In fact, we'd love to hear from you if you have listened to all. 77 episodes of the show. We'd love to know who you are and to recognize you on a future episode. So if you've been listening all this time and have listened to all 77 episodes, send us an email, gcwj at vanguard.edu, and we would love to recognize you on a future show. And we just love to know who you are and to be able to be in community and connection with you. Sandy, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for stopping by today. Thank you, Dave. You're our number one volunteer. You are a great podcast producer and co-host. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you, Sandy. Same to you. 